reach for your copy of God's Word. If you need a Bible, they're on the cart down the center aisle. You can stand up and grab one. We're going to turn to our New Testament reading this morning, which is in Matthew. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. This is... Matthew's uh, recording of the events associated with, uh, again, what we call, what is known as Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into the uh, city of Jerusalem on the week of his death. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, this is God's holy word. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey on the, and, and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's turn together to Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. Who is this? In other words, why isn't he? This man doesn't quite look like the king that we anticipated to come, um, though the prophets had foretold that he would come to them uh, in a lowly manner, in a humble manner, uh, riding on a donkey into the city. Who is this? Well, it's Jesus of Nazareth, and he is the king. Let's see how this theme, that theme, attaches uh, to Exodus chapter 10, where we have the recording in verses 1 through 20 of the eighth plague that the Lord brought upon the nation of Egypt, which I will read to you now. This is the word of God. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son, the mighty things I have done in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth and they, will, they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. 
They shall fill your houses, the houses of your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were on, on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. Uh, who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts, and the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, let us now take your word for what it truly is and the preaching of it. Father, may we have the ability to hear, to give attention, and Father, to wait on you, to know uh, how your word is the light that we need in order to walk in this world and to safely make our way through it. So we pray that you would guard us and guide us and protect us, that you would subdue us, Father, by your word and spirit, that we might be known and seen to be your disciples and your children. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know that uh, on August 5th or August 6th, 1945, that the United States of America uh, dropped an atomic bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. Uh, the next day, a leaflet was drafted by our government, and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of these leaflets were to be uh, spread over cities, Japanese cities, to warn the people. And that leaflet read like this, To the Japanese people, America asks that you take immediate heed of what we say on this leaflet. We are in possession of the most destructive, explosive, ever devised by man. A single one of our newly developed atomic bombs is actually equivalent in explosive power to what 2,000 
of our giant B-29s can carry on a single mission. This awful fact is one for you to ponder, and we solemnly assure it is grimly accurate. We have just begun to use this weapon against your homeland. If you still have any doubt, make inquiry as to what happened to Hiroshima when just one atomic bomb fell on that city. Before using this bomb to destroy every resource of the military by which they are prolonging this useless war, we ask that you now petition the emperor to end the war. Our president has outlined for you the 13 consequences of an honorable surrender. We urge that you accept these consequences and begin the work of building a new, better, and peace-loving Japan. You should take steps now to cease military resistance. Otherwise, you shall resolutely, we shall resolutely employ this bomb and all our other superior weapons to promptly and forcefully end the war. Evacuate your cities. Attention, Japanese people. Evacuate your cities. It amazes me that the government and the citizens of Japan did not heed that warning after the devastation that they had already seen fall on Hiroshima. They did not immediately pursue peace with a superior military power. They stubbornly pro prolonged the war, and it was to their own destruction. Now think of what you will about the U.S., our government's decision to drop an atomic bomb, to actually use one, but Japan's response to Hiroshima was without question one of the most foolish and costly military decisions ever made in the entire history of human warfare. But I think that we could argue that the worst leadership decision ever made in a time of war was the one that Pharaoh makes here. The Lord God of all creation is making war on the, on the nation of Egypt and on their gods. The Lord has proven his superior might. He's already done this. He's demonstrated his sovereignty over all of creation. Water, earth, sky, on all man and beast. And this war will end only one of two ways for Pharaoh and for Egypt. Total surrender to the will of the Lord or widespread destruction and death. As we hear from the Lord when Moses announced the eighth plague to Pharaoh, he can either humble himself before the Lord or he will be humiliated. It's one or the other. Humility or humiliation. But the Lord has already told us which one that, Mo that Pharaoh is going to choose. He will choose to harden his heart. He will refuse the Lord's terms of peace. And so the Lord has told us this. We, we've heard it. He told Pharaoh in chapter 9, verse 16. He said, But indeed, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And, and this tells us that the Lord was not making himself known uh, for Pharaoh's sake, but for the sake of the world. For the sake of the world. And the message is to us and to our children. There is no one like the Lord in all the earth. Pharaoh's refusal to truly humble himself before the Lord led to his humiliation in death. And who knows how many Egyptians. We know his entire army was wiped out at the Red Sea. The Lord desires that we and our children would, make, would not make the same tragic mistake if you want to live if you don't want to be humiliated in judgment 
you must humble yourself and know that the know the Lord as your God. As your God. And we hear that from the Lord's words to Moses in verses 1 and 2. He says, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. As we have seen, Pharaoh has hardened his heart against the Lord. He has refused to heed the voice of the Lord. And so now the Lord says that in response, he has hardened Pharaoh's heart and the hearts of his servants. Now again, th- this doesn't mean that the Lord made Pharaoh's heart hard. When Pharaoh might have wanted to soften his heart towards the Lord and to obey the Lord. But the Lord said, no, I'm going to harden your heart anyways. No, that's not what is being said here. The Lord is in no way responsible for Pharaoh's hard heart. Pharaoh is. This is the Lord giving Pharaoh what he already wants. This is the Lord withdrawing his merciful influences that he brings upon people that might actually bring about a change of heart. And the Lord is saying, you know, he doesn't owe that to Pharaoh. He is withdrawing that restraining influence off of Pharaoh's life because he is acting like a hard-hearted fool. The Lord here is, is simply handing Pharaoh over to the folly and darkness that is already in his heart. And again, this brings a warning to, to all of us that uh, we are not to be so foolish to think that, that we can refuse to listen to God's voice and, th- and, then, and thinking that we have the power within ourselves that one day we will just decide, today's the day that I'm, I didn't want to do it yesterday. Today's the day that I'm finally going to listen to the Lord. No, that, that's foolish. God's word says, today is the day of salvation. In other words, you don't know if there will be salvation available tomorrow. Today is the day. Don't wait for tomorrow. Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There may come a day when his spirit is and his influence is no longer striving against your resistance to his word, and he will harden your heart. And then you will be humiliated. That's what the Lord says that he has done to Pharaoh here as an example to us, as an example to our children. We're supposed to tell our children about this, the Lord says here. The Lord says that he has shown these signs of his upon Pharaoh. What are these signs? Young people, what are these signs that the Lord is talking about here? Well, they're the plagues. The plagues, the, the signs are the plagues that are the Lord brought and is bringing upon Egypt and is destroying Egypt, is casting the shadow of death over the, the, the kingdom of Pharaoh. In verse 2, the Lord says that he has done this so that Moses and the children of Israel will tell their sons and their son's son. In other words, their, their sons and their grandsons. Of course, we know from other places in Scripture that these acts of the Lord are to be told to all of God's children, both sons and daughters. But it, it's men, it's the men among the people of God. It's the men as, as heads of household or future heads of household who are most responsible for making sure that the, that 
children are raised to know, to know the Lord. And I'll have more to say about that by way of application near the end of the sermon. But for now, let's notice that we are, from these verses, that we are to teach our children and our grandchildren about the mighty acts of the Lord, so that, so that they might know that He is the Lord, that the, so that they might know that there is none like Him in all the earth, so that they would know the Lord as their God. Now look at verse 2 again. The New King James says, Tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt. The English uh, Standard Version, ESV, uh, however, translates it this way. Tell them how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians. The NIV translates it very similarly. Um, One Hebrew scholar, Douglas Stewart, notes that the Hebrew verb that is used here, it can mean to abuse, it can mean to mistreat, but always in the sense of to abuse to the point of humiliating. It is to humiliate someone. And that's why some English translations say, tell your children and your grandchildren how I humiliated the Egyptians. That's what the Lord is saying. The plagues here are a form of holy humiliation they are signs they're signs of the final judgment that is to come upon the earth with each plague the lord deals another crushing blow on the powers that egypt uh, takes refuge in and the lord makes a mockery of those things the lord is making a mockery of pharaoh and egypt's gods and as we've seen this in a previous uh, plague and the previous plagues, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they believed that life and prosperity came from the Nile River. From the Nile River. In the second plague, we saw that they, they looked to the world and, and created things to define who they were or to discover for themselves their own life's purpose. Are you doing the same? Are you doing those things? We've seen in the third plague how the the Egyptians thought that they could build a lasting city by the work of their own hands and that they were satisfied with worldly treasures. Is that enough for you? In the fourth plague, we saw that they rested all of their hope in the future, for for the future in human ingenuity, in in science, in, in human effort. Next, we saw that masculine strength and feminine beauty were the powers that they used to obtain the things that they wanted. We saw how they trusted the plans of human leaders for their security. For their security. Those are the beliefs that the Egyptians lived by and that the Lord here is judging. Those are the things that that they put above and beside God, that they put their trust in instead of the Lord, are we doing that too, those things? For we've seen one by one, with each passing plague, the Lord has made a mockery of all of those religious ideas. Their, their man-made gods and everything they trusted in have been utterly humiliated. The Lord has humiliated them, much like architect uh, William M. Friedman was humiliated on June 24th, 2021. June 24th, 2021, that was the the night, the the condominium building that Mr. Friedman had designed collapsed at 2 o'clock in the morning in Miami, Florida, uh, killing 98 people who were sleeping inside. 
All indications are uh, from the initial investigation that there were significant errors in the design of that building, in its, in the, the, both in its foundation, in the, the steel supports, and in the design of the large swimming pool that sat just outside the portion of the building that collapsed. Even though the uh, architectural firm uh, William F. Friedman and Associates, it, it no longer exists, but if it, it's still the name of that firm has been utterly humiliated. Let's say that they were still in business. Would any of you turn to William F. Friedman and Associates to design uh, your home or your office building? No. William F. Friedman and Associates will be, the, the, that name will be the butt of jokes in architectural schools for, for many years to come. The collapse of that building has proven that they did not know what they were talking about when they handed over that, those sets of plans to the builder who constructed that doomed building. That's like what the Lord has just done to Egypt here in Exodus. He has shown the whole world that they do not know what they are talking about. The powerful-looking society that they have created while ignoring the voice of the Lord, it's not powerful at all. It's a sham. They have been humiliated as people who are ignorant and self-deceived. Now, young people, the, the Lord is in the process of humiliating the United States of America, I believe, and the, the perverse society and culture that we are presently building. Just listen to our leaders. Just listen to the celebrities our culture worships. Listen to the things they say. Listen to the elites who, who tell us what it is that we should believe and that we're all backwards. Listen to them. And you will hear that their ideas are utter foolishness. Utter foolishness. The children that they don't slaughter in the womb, they, they want to brainwash into believing that they can choose their own gender. They say it's fair for biological males who claim to be women for them to, uh, it's fair for them to compete in women's sports and to completely dominate those sports. They say defunding the police is the way to make our neighborhoods safer. They say spending trillions of dollars that we don't have, even though we know it'll make inflation skyrocket, they say that's building back better. And I'm not surprised anymore when our cultural elites champion causes that they think are moral, but they are absolutely absurd on the face of it. We're just getting used to this. And, and their every solution seems to only make problems worse. And we should ask, what's going on here? What is going on? I think the answer from Scripture is the Lord is humiliating our nation. And handing, by handing us over to the destructiveness of unbelief. And the Lord says to Moses, Make sure that your children and your children's children know that the greatest nation on earth doesn't know what it is talking about when it comes to knowing how to live and to live forever. And that nation is nothing in comparison to the Lord. There is no one like him. God's people should want their children and all future generations to look at Pharaoh and the Egyptians to see how not to respond to the Lord. He wants them to see the only, that the only people 
only people who belong to the Lord and who heed his voice will endure and prosper. So children, look and see here, look here, and see the disaster and the humiliation that lies ahead for a nation that refuses to humble itself before the Lord. Look at verses 3 through 6. So Moses and Aaron came in to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that you may serve me, or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of your servants, the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day they were on the earth to this day. Now, Pharaoh's lack of humility before the Lord is, it, it is part of his humiliation. His lack of humility is part of his humiliation because it is being used to expose him as a fool for having refused to heed the voice of the Lord. And when this is over, this Pharaoh will be known as one of the greatest fools who has ever walked the planet. Now, even his servants are wising up. We hear them ask Pharaoh a different version of the question that the Lord asked Pharaoh in verse 3. How long? How long? But unlike the Lord's question, the servant's question doesn't directly blame Pharaoh. They, that would have likely been suicide for those servants pharaoh's servants blame moses they say this man is a snare to us but they they do imply the servants you notice here they do imply that if pharaoh wasn't so foolish he would see that this has gone on too long if he wasn't so blinded by pride he would see that his nation has been destroyed by the lord's judgment but the servant's accusation against Moses shows us, as verse 1 says, that their hearts were hardened too. This is not them turning to the Lord and acknowledging him. No, they say, the servant of the Lord, this man Moses, is a snare. He's a trap to us. But what don't they see? What they don't see is that if they, if they have fallen into a trap, it is the Lord that has set the trap, not Moses. But they propose a compromise to Pharaoh that might allow Egypt to be spared further destruction. Let, let the male Israelite, let the men go out that they may serve the Lord. And the strategy is designed to persuade Moses, isn't it? As a man, the man Moses, as if the Egyptians uh, are that, they're dealing with Moses. That's what they appear to be thinking here. But they aren't dealing with Moses, are they? They're dealing with the Lord. So, but they think that they can come up with some compromise that Moses will, will take on. Uh, this is how unbelievers uh, often uh, treat us as the people of God when it comes to uh, biblical morality and all kinds of topics, whether it be abortion or sexuality, human identity, the roles of men and women, or what true justice looks like. They, they attack us. They, they think we're the problem. They think we're the ones standing in the way, but we're not. We're, it's not us. We're just taking God at his word. It's God that they have a problem with. And it, it helps us. It actually helps us to remember that. So that, that, number one, we won't compromise. 
We need to remember that we won't compromise with them to achieve some false form of peace. And Moses is an example to us here about how to do that, how to stand our ground in this way. Pharaoh thinks that his servants are on to something. He calls Moses back. Let's get him in here. Let's see if he'll accept the compromise. Uh, maybe we'll, you know, they feel that they'll just let the Israelite men go out to worship the Lord. Maybe that'll do it. So Moses calls Pharaoh and or Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron to present to them this compromise. We see in verses 8 through 11, Pharaoh says, Go, serve the Lord your God. But, but who, by the way, are the ones that are going? Now, this is a, a negotiation tactic. Rather than coming out directly with the offer that Pharaoh has in mind, he asks a question uh, with the hope that he will get the answer that he is looking for that only the men will go, but Moses refuses to negotiate. Moses does not compromise. And he understands that he can't because he is not speaking for himself. Like us, when it comes to engaging the world about ultimate issues and eternal matters and moral matters, we are to speak for the Lord our God. And Moses does. He says, we will go with our young and our old with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Now, what else can Moses say as, this, as God's servant? This is the kind of worship, this is the kind of service that the Lord has called his people to. Now, there's something peculiar about the kind of worship that uh, Israel is being called into, because the, when it came to Egyptian worship, it was mostly the men who participated in the cults, in the temples. Now, there were some women, but they were usually, um, they were usually co-opted and brought into those situations, forced to serve the pleasures of those men. But the Lord says that the, his worship is for the men and the women and the children. They, they are to gather together as one holy congregation. And we see from other places in Scripture that this is the Lord's design for his house, for, for his worship. We see this in places like Deuteronomy 31, 12 through 13, where the Lord says, Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. We see this later on in the Old Testament in Ezra chapter 10, verse 1, uh, where after Israel has returned to Jerusalem from uh, being in exiled in Babylon, and they are restoring under the, the priest Ezra, they are restoring a biblical worship. And this in chapter 10 is the description that we get as Ezra gathers the people together. He's, it, we're told now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly. In the New Testament, we hear Jesus saying to his disciples, let the little children come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Right? When Paul wrote his letter, to the Ephesians, he, he assumed that, that children of believers would be present when the church gathered for public worship and Paul's letter was read. How do we know that? Because Paul speaks directly to the children in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Now, all of this to say that it is God's design 
that when his people gather for worship, that their women and their children be present along with the men. For he is present. He is there to speak to them too. It's not just for the men. And this is why we as a church encourage that as much as possible, children be with their parents in worship. Now, when they're young, there are natural obstacles to that, right? Babies cry. Toddlers squirm while they're learning that the Lord is truly among us. Now, we have to patiently teach them. But we do that with excitement. With excitement. The the Lord is here to speak to them too. He is meeting with His people. And He wants them here so that they can learn to, to hear His voice and to respond in faith to His Word. And that's why we, we don't have a children's church. We don't. Now, first of all, I, we don't see it in Scripture. Uh, we don't see in Scripture that, that when the church gathers that there's actually two churches. There's one for the, the people who are old enough to sit still, and then there's one for everybody else. Now, there are, there are special considerations. We, uh, we have a special needs child. If we have somebody who is physically, uh, has physical difficulties or mental difficulties, we have, to, we have to figure out how are we going to minister to them. How are we going to care for them? And as much as possible, help them be present here when God is meeting with his people. But we teach, uh, we, we don't see that the Lord has authorized uh, two separate worship services, right? He, he's created one body. He's authorized one way of worshiping him and drawing near to him through the ministers that he has called and gifted and had ordained to minister to the entire body. He has ordained that we disciple our children to become worshipers of him when they are standing and sitting there right at our side, where they can see in us the, the kind of faith and zeal and, and uh, vigor with which God should be worshipped. They look, they look to us for the sincerity of worship that, that we want to see instilled in them. We want to see God work that in their hearts. This is God's will for them. That, that we teach them as we're praying that these are their prayers too. As we sing that these are their songs too. That he, the, the Lord is their God too. He has gathered them too together with us so that he can speak to them too. You don't think God can do this? Look at John the Baptist when he was a, he was an, a babe in the womb of his of his mother Elizabeth, and when Mary, who was pregnant with the Lord Jesus Christ, walked into the room, John leapt with joy by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of his mother. Now that's an extraordinary thing. Just don't tell me that the Holy Spirit can't do what the Holy Spirit designs to do. And so we are we wiser than God? Are we? when it comes to to our children coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And we see it here. You go with your young and your old, with your sons and your daughters, with your children, and we must gather with the Lord and hold a feast to him. If only the church would consider this when when it comes to asking and answering the question, why are our children leaving Jesus and the church behind? When When they become adults and they become independent, now, I can only tell you just now what I have read from others who have left the church but, and then come back later. But one, uh, and there are many reasons for this, but 
I've read books about this where some who have come back to the church describe how they, they attribute their exodus from the church. They ascribe it to the fact that they were scurried off to children's church where they were entertained, where, where their faith was further juvenilized in youth groups that made, tried to make Jesus look hip and, and cool according to the secular culture's standards. Churches do that. We can be tempted to do that. And, and they, these believers have testified to the fact that, that they were taught our culture's art forms. They, they, rather than being taught to evaluate our culture's art forms, uh, they were taught that those art forms are religiously neutral. And many children whose belief in God is entertainment-oriented they come to find out, it's seen in their life later, that they just don't take the Lord that seriously. And the, the culturally secular, hip form of Christianity that children learn can learn in youth groups, they don't have to, but they can, it often fuels the desire to be cool by the world standards, doesn't it? It, it leads to more, it, it easily leads to a more overt secularism when we try to use secularism to lead them to Jesus Christ. But note here, the Lord's design for worship spoken of by Moses in verse 9. It, it was counter to Egyptian culture, just as God's worship is always to be countercultural. Now you can read this for yourself later, but in Deuteronomy chapter 12, the Lord tells his people that they are not to worship him like the nations worship their gods. Is that still true today? Now we should be we should be a little bit more wise, a little more circumspect, do a little bit more evaluation as we think about these things. God wants us to worship him with our children at our sides as much as we're able, right? So that so we believe that our children will grow as they are immersed in the deep things of God. The Lord doesn't want us to give them the impression for one second that the worship the Lord has called us into isn't for them. We must not do that. And we can see uh, God at work here, can't we? Among our young people. And we've got young people who say, Amen. In, in the worship, we, we've got children who sing with gusto. We've got children here that have their own personal lists of favorite psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They mean something to them. We're teaching them that they belong here with us before the Lord, and the Lord is speaking to them too, right? And we see our children, we see our children coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. We just note here that it is the world and the devil who are trying to get us to leave our children out of worship. That's what Pharaoh is trying to accomplish here with threats. We see that in verse 11. He threatens Moses in verses 10 and 11. He says to them, uh, then he said to them, the Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now with, with uh, you who are men and serve the Lord for that is what you desired. That's interesting. Uh, Pharaoh is saying, if you take your, your women and children to worship the Lord, he had better be with you because I 
have evil planned for you. I will bring evil down upon you. No, in fact, just let the men go out. And then he tacks on at the end. That's what you desired. It's kind of like that uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi Jedi mind trick thing. Now, these are not the droids you're looking for here. Uh, uh, Only only the men going out to worship is uh, what you desired. But the Lord never compromises with the world, does he? He never does. He immediately tells Moses and Aaron, there in verse 12, um, as uh, Pharaoh is driving them away, he says, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. And this is just what Moses did, and what do you know? In verses 13 through 15, uh, we see described for us there the devastation that the Lord, that the Lord's locusts brought upon the land of Egypt. What is described there, friends, is that all of the food is gone. Everything green is gone. All of their grain, all of their trees. The locusts were in their house too. Maybe they had a, a, a little a potted avocado tree in the kitchen window. Gone. Gone. And you know what this means, don't you? The Egyptians are going to starve. People are going to starve. Death is coming upon the nation of Egypt. Their daily bread has been taken away. And Pharaoh knows that he has brought death upon his people, for he says so in verses 16 and 17. Look there. He, he again asks Moses to pray for him. This time he asks Moses to forgive him. Wow. He asks him to, to, to ask the Lord to take away the death uh, just this one time that his own sin has brought on Egypt. And, and Moses did. He went out from Pharaoh. He entreated the Lord, and the Lord removed Every locust in the land of Egypt. There, it's noted there, there was not one left. Just to show you that the Lord is in control, right? But the damage was already done. The damage was done. Pharaoh refused to humble himself before the Lord God Almighty. So he and his people have been utterly humiliated. Humiliated. Of course, the Lord wants us to warn our children about this, right? That makes sense. The Lord wants us to warn our children that if we too don't humble ourselves before the Lord, if we don't tremble at his word, that we will be humiliated on the day of judgment. We need to, we need to know that. Young people, you need to know that. But as we saw from the first Palm Sunday, so long ago, recorded for us in Matthew chapter 21, when our Redeemer entered Jerusalem, the Lord has given us a better story to tell our children than just the one about Pharaoh's humiliation. How, how did Matthew, did you catch how Matthew said, says it? He says, all of this was done that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. Tell the daughters of Zion. Tell the children of God. Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey. Jesus' lowly ride into Jerusalem that Sunday teaches us that he, even though he is the king of glory, he came to us with the kind of humility that the Lord requires of us. That's how Jesus came. He was humble before both God and man. He came as the servant of God and the servant of men in order to fulfill all righteousness in our place. He humbled himself before God. 
He did that for us. Because pride has taken hold of us too. Even as we're sitting here listening to his word, pride is still getting in the way of us responding to him and receiving his word the way that we ought to, even right now. But our comfort is that our king was humble for us and he has the power to enable us to be humble too. And what's more, although Jesus was God's humble, obedient servant, the Lord did not spare him from the plagues of judgment that are reserved for the enemies of God. No, when that week, by the time that week had ended, Jesus had been utterly humiliated before God and man. According to the Father's plan, he was hung on a cruel cross, having been beaten and stripped naked and seen there as a guilty, vile criminal. He was humiliated. For us. For as the scriptures tell us, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the greatest story ever told, right? The greatest story ever told. There, and there is nothing that we can do in this life that is more important than learning that story for ourselves and then telling it to others, especially to our children and our children's children. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a, a powerful portrait of your judgment we see in the book of Exodus where you come to humiliate those who refuse to be humbled before you and to receive your word so that they might live. And Father, we want to thank you for what we see in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was both humble and humiliated. He did it for us. He stood in our place. And Father, may it be that we see in him the kind of life that we too want to live, that we go out to him by faith, that we would have been, if we had been there that day in Jerusalem, that we would have been the ones casting down our clothes and uh, waving the palm branches and recognizing in him the salvation of the world, not as he came to conquer with swords and spears and clubs, but as he came to conquer through the cross. And we thank you, Father, how he has triumphed gloriously and how he has subdued us his, who were once his enemies. Rather than crushing us, he has captured us and made us sons and daughters. And Father, so let our hearts and our love go out to him, our faith. May our children sing his praises. May they be prepared and discipled to disciple their children and that their children's children might be discipled to know the Lord. And we ask that your spirit might accomplish it as we, as we simply and humbly uh, take you at your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand together and sing uh, this wonderful hymn. I don't know if it's known to... You, um, it's been a while since we sang it, number 330, but it's a wonderful uh, hymn that tells so richly this, the story of Jesus Christ and who he is. And I picked this one having thinking of Matthew chapter 21.
there when Jesus rides into town and, and what is the question that was asked? Who is this? And here is a great hymn that tells us uh, who he is. It's not 333. No, it's 330. Okay, I'm, I think, yep. Okay, very good. our faith together now using uh, the words of 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 9. I ask you, brothers and sisters, what it is that you believe. But reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying, 
and worthy of all Amen. Please be seated. Now maybe after today's uh, sermon you're wondering, well, what about the gods of Egypt? I didn't spend um, very, well, very little time, or I didn't even mention any of the gods that this uh, plague, that uh, eighth plague may have been a, a judgment upon, but there were several. Uh, men was the patron of the crops, Nepri, the god of the grain, Anubis, the guardian of the field, and Senhem, the divine protector against pests. So they had, they had their gods that were to protect their grain uh, so that they could have their daily bread. Uh, but this time, obviously, those gods failed them. Marvelously, extraordinarily failed. And the Lord was showing himself, wasn't he, on that day that he is the one who gives daily bread? And in fact, that's the very thing that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, when he taught his disciples how to pray, that's one of the things he taught us to pray for. Give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because uh, the Lord is the one who gives it. The Psalms tell us that he, he opens his hand and he, he feeds both man and beast. And he keeps us alive. But Jesus said to some who chased after him along the countryside after they had eaten uh, from the loaves uh, Jesus said to them, do not labor for the food which perishes, or the bread, literally the bread that perishes, but for the bread which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And the very next uh, thing those people say to Jesus is they say, what, what works shall we do that we might do the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that you would believe in me. That's God's work. That's how you feed upon the bread that will give you everlasting life is you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, here at the meal, we come to be reminded that he is our life, that he is our food. He is the spiritual nourishment that we, we, uh, that we need, that we might live forever. And he is here to... Uh, stir up faith in our hearts and by faith we we feed upon him and we we grow we're we're nourished strengthened and our faith grows so again much like last week's call to us as we come to the lord's supper is a look to christ just now not just that you might believe in him but that you might grow as you are united to him by faith well let's pray our father in heaven we ask that you would work in us by your Spirit, through the visible word that we are about to enjoy together, may it preach the gospel to our hearts as we taste it. And may your spirit work to increase our faith and to inflame our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.